Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Locus Award-winning author Tamsin Mir. She is the author of the Locked Tomb Trilogy, the most recent novel of which is Harrow the Ninth, published by our friends at Tor. Tamsin, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Jason. And may I say, it's really nice to hear a Locus Award winning. That is the first time I've ever been called that. <laughs> Great. Well, I'm glad I was able to be the first person to say it. Um, Tamsin, you're talking to us, I believe, from the UK, and I understand the, situ- the situation... Uh, surrounding the coronavirus is maybe a little bit different there here in the usa it's a total shit show um what has it been like there generally speaking and how has it been trying to follow award ceremonies and imagining the publicity cycle surrounding a new novel at this time well you know i'm in an interesting position here in the uk because um judging by my not very good uk accent i'm originally from new zealand so everything has been salted liberally with bitterness because back home in new zealand everything now appears to be business as normal after a huge push um in an early lockdown attempt by the new zealand government so you know that worked out wonders for everyone but me who lives and works in the uk and now has to get taunted daily by my family who can buy takeaway coffees whenever they want um but uh, in the UK, and I mean, I've never, nobody's ever been through anything like this before. I've only had one round of, you know, promoting books and talking about books and, and doing the rounds. Um, but it has been incredibly nasty. You know, it, it, it sucks. It blows. I I really wanted to be able to uh, do publicity for my latest book. I should actually have been in uh, home right now in New Zealand for Worldcon, but everything has been cancelled. Right. Um, thank you so much, Tamsin. I know it's a interesting times for everyone. Um, Harrow the Ninth, which has not yet been published as we sit here speaking, but which may be out in the world by the time this podcast airs, is the second novel of the Locked Tomb trilogy. Uh, I imagine we will be introducing many of our listeners to the trilogy for the first time, so I want to spend a moment or three talking about the first volume, Gideon the Ninth, uh, which again just won a Locus Award, and congratulations again. Um, Gideon the Ninth, and thus the Locked Tomb trilogy, begins with Gideon trying trying to escape the House of the Ninth, and Harrowhark Nonagesimus, who is the head of the House of the Ninth, not in name but in actuality, goes to great pains to keep Gideon there. The dynamic between these two characters is the crux of the entire novel, uh, the ending of which floored me. And Tamsin, can you talk about the relationship between Gideon and Harrow and how it changed throughout that first novel and the decision to end Gideon the Ninth with, spoiler alert everyone, um, I'll give you a moment to pause, thank you, uh, to end Gideon the Ninth with Gideon's death. You know, it's really interesting uh, looking back at it now. I wrote uh, Gideon the Ninth, the first book in the trilogy, back in 2017. Um, through the 2018, long before lockdown. So I guess anybody who comes to the book now is uh, probably going to be a lot more sympathetic with uh, Gideon's situation than maybe they would have otherwise been, in that at the beginning of the book, she is completely trapped and always has been um, in a dark hole, which I now know many of us can sympathize Mm -hmm. with, being trapped in our homes uh, since the beginning of the year. Mm -hmm. Um, 
You know, unlike in normal lockdown situations, Gideon is trapped in a low population place with everybody uh, dying or dead, an extremely graying population with only one other girl her age who is desperate to keep her there so that she cannot reveal the secret of the ninth house, which is that everybody is pretty much dead, um, which again, I feel like any, everybody can sympathize with now that they've been trapped uh, in their homes with their loved ones for months on end. Um, and the relationship between these two characters is, you know, controversial. Um, you know, you'd hope that two teenage girls, you know, one is 17, one is 18, one is ambitious and wants to go join the military. The other is ambitious, but ambitious in a very inward way. She wants to protect her home at all costs. Um, two girls you'd think with something in common who might have a heartwarming story about how they teach each other friendship, uh, you know, the meaning of getting what you want, um, working together, um, when in fact they start the book out and continue the book uh, wishing the other one was dead. Um, you know, a lot of people have looked at the cover, which has a wonderful, wonderful blurb on it, um, uh, by Charlie Stross, the uh, basic thrust of which is Lesbians in Space, which I love. It's fantastic. Uh, I think they expected the two titular lesbians, so to speak, um, to be a little more sympathetic with each other. They are not. It is the story of two girls who hate each other. Um, but who are forced to work together when they move from one lockdown to another type of lockdown, which is the locked room mystery. All right. Thank you so much, Tamsin. And Harrow Hark Nonagesimus is a necromancer. Uh, leaving her specifically aside for a moment, is the concept of necromancy something that you have always been interested in? What drew you to write a novel, a trilogy of novels about the dark arts? You know what? It sounds awful, but I'd never been that interested in necromancy before. I mean, I think for a lot of us, our first sort of necromancy figure is if you play, you know, Dungeons and Dragons or, you know, if you maybe play the computer game Diablo. And, um, you know, we have this vision usually of uh, some guy in a long black coat covered in skull jewelry, uh, you know, standing at a corpse and talking to a ghost. Um, I love the long black coke. I love the skull jewelry. Um, but I was never that interested in what seemed to be the main thrust, i.e. talking to ghosts. Um, and, you know, uh, later on I started to see more connections in necromancy to ancient epic. There is a lot of what we would call necromancy in, you know, the ancient Greek, uh, Greek myths. And one thing I always loved was the idea of when you talk to the dead um, in the afterlife in uh, ancient Greek mythology, it's a very bloody affair. So it is not this kind of more stereotypical stand at a grave, recite some words, you know, generally ask a ghost who murdered it. Um, it is very much about tempting ghosts back from an otherworldly plane. So I, I like that aspect of it, um, but I didn't like how passive it seemed to be in most uh, especially I think 1970s fantasy portrayed it it's very much a magic system revolving around being able to talk to the dead the main difference in that kind of necromancy and the necromancy of the Locktomb trilogy is that there is a lot of talking to ghosts 
there is a lot of looking at the afterlife, but most of the magic is actually about the body because in terms of what I'm interested in, I'm really, really interested in horror. I have a background as a horror writer um, and I love body horror. I always have. I also come from the video game tradition, so maybe that's kind of hardened me to seeing kind of blobs of flesh, uh, you know, on every available screen, you know, blood gousing up uh, in a kind of Kill Bill fashion. So I really wanted a magic that was just kind of icky. So I got more interested in necromancy as I wrote the book. And, you know, of course, necessarily I'm interested in necromancy now. But it's something very specific to my mythos and not something I can point at and say, oh, you know, that inspired me specifically. Right. Thank you so much. And in the first novel, Tamsin, Gideon and this sort of harkens to your um, love of video games a little bit. Gideon is involved in a lot of fight scenes, and you wrote these scenes somewhat famously in consultation with a sword fighter. Can you tell us first about the moment when you decided, wait a second, I might need to consult an experienced sword fighter to make this scene work? And second, can you tell us about the process of working with a sword fighter to make these wonderful scenes click? Uh, I got to work with the wonderful Lissa Harris, who has a HEMA background, and I knew I needed Lissa pretty much the moment that I wrote the book. I went in knowing that I loved sword fights. I really wanted to write them, but my heroine, Gideon, she's really good with swords. She is good with them in a technical way that I am not. You know, when I started writing the book, although I had the kind of amateur's interest in swords, you know, it's a very seven-year-old's interest where you can name about three swords, you know, you go from there. Um, you think you've got an interest in swords, but all you really know is that you know nothing. A little bit of, in, uh, of knowledge just lets you know that you are a complete amateur. So when I had uh, in my uh, in my books, uh, not simply the first one, but going on. Um, fights very much revolve around formal duels. And I've always been interested in writing fight scene choreography, but I don't have a fencing background. I don't have any kind of sword fighting background. You know, I have never even, uh, I'm ashamed to say, held a proper sword, but that's because my arms are extremely noodly. So I knew that I needed technical detail from somebody who had picked up a sword, and that was Lissa Harris. And I wanted my sword fighter to be extremely versed in the art of the two-handed sword, which I knew enough about to know that everybody's conception of it as a big tool that doesn't have a lot of finesse is wrong. It's actually a very sophisticated weapon. And one of the points of Gideon the Ninth is that Gideon starts out as this two-handed Zweihander expert. But all of the duels in the book take place in the confines of rapier duels. So she has to learn incredibly quickly how to translate her two-handed knowledge into being a successful rapier fighter, which is incredibly difficult and actually involves a hell of a lot of training before the book even begins. So I wanted Lissa, who had actually come to HEMA um, in the opposite way. She'd started out with rapier and then transitioned to two-handed swords. So Lissa, who had this knowledge, who in a way is one of the inspirations for Gideon, um, as she is an incredible uh, brassy gay sword fighter herself, um, 
could give me that technical knowledge, but also the difficulty of transitioning sword fighting and in what ways Gideon might be incredibly disadvantaged moving to a one-handed sword and offhand and she was also incredibly useful in getting me Gideon's offhand so in the book um, she wields the rapier but she also wields what is in the trilogy talked of as the knuckle which is basically a guard that goes on the hand but is also a cool glove with claws on because you know why not thank you Tamsin this trilogy, again, is called the Locked Tomb Trilogy. Harrowhark Nonagesimus, the titular character of the second volume in the series, Harrow the Ninth, her whole life revolves around, or rather springs from, a scene involving her parents and a locked tomb. Can you explain this scene for our listeners? Well, it may spoil the whole uh, series to note that even though it is called the Locked Tomb Mystery, uh, that tomb was not necessarily always locked. So the emotional crux of the first book is when we find out, and it's a mystery that uh, comes up throughout the entire book, as to why Harrow and Gideon hate each other and what happened in their childhood to really crystallize their enmity towards each other. So what that scene revolves around is the discovery that Gideon makes that Harrow has in fact opened the locked tomb and gone within, which in their culture, in the all of the laws of the Ninth House is completely forbidden. Um, in a way, it's the greatest heresy she could have undergone. It's the locked tomb for a reason, it's not the open tomb. So what Gideon does um, as an 11-year-old, as a 10-year-old, is she goes and tells Harrow's parents that their daughter has committed blatant apocalyptic heresy, which, as any reader might gather, does not go down well, but goes much worse than Gideon had ever envisioned. Harrow's parents kill themselves and then ask Harrow to follow with their suicide. So it's a nasty scenario. It's a really quite grim and appalling family affair of a dysfunctional group of people. Um, children who have had to be following rules that never should have been given to them, all culminating in uh, basically a cult suicide. And the difficulty being that Gideon, of course, never could have known um, what her action, what consequences her actions would have had. Um, Harrow, who possibly did know, but went ahead with it anyway. And how that made a rift between any friendship Harrow and Gideon could have ever had throughout their entire lives. Gideon blamed herself for Harrow's parents' death. Harrow blaming herself for Harrow's parents' death. Thank you so much, Tamsin. Um, What an intense scene that is. Listeners, we are going to take a break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Tamsin Mir. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story. One that supports community. 
Listeners of Bookin' can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin', B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Tam Sinmir, author of Harrow the Ninth, published by our good friends at Tor. Tamson, Harrow was made a necromancer because of the death of 200 children in the House of the Ninth. Why did 200 children need to die, and how did their deaths transform child Harrow into a necromancer? In my universe, being a necromancer is usually completely genetic. Uh, Being a necromancer is limited to about uh, just under 50% of the population. You know, it's a good number. Necromancers keep getting born. But because of the strains it puts on the body, it means that the fertility rate for necromancers, especially necromancers wanting to have children with other necromancers, is appallingly low, which does make for a culture that is tried and strained to produce babies any single other way. Unfortunately, Harrow's parents in the Ninth House came from a particularly impoverished house and also came from a tradition where if they had a baby that was not a necromancer, their entire way of life would end with them. So you had a situation with two necromancers, no other way to get a baby, um, absolutely no help from the outside because that would admit admitting their poverty and their desperation. But you did have a healthy current generation of the Ninth House, which at that time involved 200 children um, from the ages of infancy all the way up to 18 years of age. So what happens in the book is that they commit, um, Harrow herself describes it as a war crime, um, one of the ugliest sins that anybody in the Nine Houses had ever been able to or fathom or not even imagine, in that they sacrifice 200 kids in order to use uh, the energy of those deaths, um, which in my books is a thing called Thanagy, which opposes the life energy, which is called Thalagy. And that uh, bloom of energy is able to let them conceive a child, or so they think. But that child is Harrowhark, who is the heroine of the second book and kind of the antagonist of the first one. And she is taught from a very young age that this is how she was conceived, which does not really help uh, any self-identity or confidence. Right, thank you so much, Tamson. As a lead in to the next question, I would like to ask who painted the covers for these two novels? Ah, the incredible Tommy Arnold. Uh, so many people have told me flatteringly that they picked up the books only because of the incredibly striking and beautiful covers by Tommy Arnold. I can well see what they mean. I currently have in my own living room two massive prints of them because they are just so beautiful. Um, Tommy is just an out-of-this-world artist. I don't even know enough about art to know how good he is. Other people do and have told me so. Um, His sense of colour, his sense of characterisation blows me away every time I get to see a new cover. Um, I can't really say anything about the Elector one, uh, the third book in the trilogy, except that I have seen it and it's really cool. But I think what really amazes me about his artwork is that he manages to get in a very bleak, 
sense of, you know, bones and skulls and space. But if you look especially at the cover of Gideon the Night, very sassy characterization. Everything in the way that Gideon, my heroine, is standing, holding her big-ass sword, you know, wearing sunglasses, if you look closely enough, just blows me away with its personality. He's got the best of both worlds. And for the second cover, Harrow, which is uh, beautiful in so many other different ways, it carries that sense of character in it. Harrow is not so smug, maybe, as Gideon, um, but she is incredibly determined. Everything she is wearing is super cool, and just all of the skeletons around her, I think, bear closer examination, because a lot of them are actually in very funny poses. So Tommy Arnold's work is absolutely stunning, and I could not have had a better cover artist. Excellent. Thank you so much. And I asked you, because the covers are so masterfully done and they lend to the ambiance of the entire story that the cover contains in a better way than most any other covers I've seen in recent memory, and part of these images is the striking nature of the paint that the characters wear on their faces, and there is a moment in Harrow the Ninth when the following passage occurs. She wore her paint far beyond the strictures of any nun, wore it in private, sometimes slept in it. She found the sight of her own unpainted face in the mirror impossibly wearisome, monstrous, and nonsensical, somehow far away and yet heinously attached to herself. End of passage. Tamsin, why was this paint so important to Harrow? And can you talk about the nature of one's own face being foreign, wearisome, burdensome, because it is not one that is accustomed to being seen? And I'll get another shout out to Tommy Arnold here, because one thing I love about the covers is despite the fact that these uh, two girls have their entire faces covered in skull paint, they're still incredibly characterful which maybe in fact contradicts something about the paint itself it is ritual paint as is worn in the ninth house there's no specific pattern to it except that there are ritual different forms of the skull it's to be worn at all times by different priests by different religious figures inside the ninth house but as the ninth house has dwindled as so often happens when a culture crystallizes. It has become a symbol, especially for Harrow, of the Ninth House and of her duty. So if you look at the first cover, and indeed in the first book, when Gideon wears the paint, she absolutely hates it because she sees it as something that is meant to cover her up. She has only worn the paint as a child, immediately stopped using it, and her reasoning was, was that it was a cover. It was hiding herself. It was meant to change her into something she didn't particularly want to be, which was dutiful to the ninth house. The paint and the pattern represents wanting to die for your country. It is the ultimate act of patriotism. For Harrow, who has, as uh, described, worn the paint since basically birth, for her, it is almost, I think, in the nature of a tattoo. So putting on the paint is a soothing ritual, and wearing the paint is almost taking on the uniform of somebody she would desperately like to be, even if she can't be that person all the time. Again, somebody willing to die for her country, for what she believes in, for her home, for what her parents did. Um, somebody who 
can become someone else. You know, there is a kind of transformative nature of face paint, you know, why we talk about wall paint, why we talk about woad, why we talk about so many different cultures who have painted their faces or scarified their faces for ritual purposes. And it is part of this kind of transformative tradition of being able to put something on and take it off. For Harrow, she hates the idea of taking it off. And when she actually sees her naked face in the mirror, and this is something that's explored in both books, she finds it a kind of lack of nudity and a lack of modesty that we might only experience if we were kind of stripped completely bare. So for her, the paint is able to hide herself. And how much of that ties back into her hatred of her own body, which was produced in such an appalling way? You know, that's something psychological for the book to get into. But for Harrow, the paint absolutely represents being able to transform into somebody she is scared she is not actually. Thank you so much, Tamsin. And I want to ask you about another quote from Harrow the Ninth. Um, Harrow is studying, she's learning necromancery at an earlier stage of her life, and the quote I want to ask you about is, the scholarship became difficult once she realized belatedly that it was difficult. And this quote drew me in because I began to imagine a parallel timeline where Harrow never realized that the scholarship was difficult, and as such, never had to try that hard. Um, can you tr- can you talk about the concept of something only becoming difficult once one realizes that it is difficult? It's a really, really interesting quote you picked out, and I'm so glad you picked that one out, Jason, because I have a background as a teacher. Mm-hmm. I taught for seven years. I taught both at the what we would call home in New Zealand, the primary age, which I guess is elementary for you, and of high school. And in fact, in a lot of ways, that quote is completely wrong. In a lot of ways, that quote is completely right. So many people learn in so many different ways. And for Harrow, Harrow was the kind of student who did actually desperately need a challenge. I get the feeling that if nobody had told Harrow how hard it was, or if she had never found anything difficult, her story would have stopped a lot earlier. One thing that really defines Harrow as a character is that she can absorb almost unthought of amounts of suffering and keep going. Harrow thinks that hardship and hard work and scholarship is absolutely the cornerstone of necromancy, of any success. Um, You know, Harrow is one of those ghastly people who would have on her fridge one of those magnets saying the only place where success comes before work is in the dictionary. Harrow really does think that genius is kind of a lure and a snare. In her own way, she is one of the most gifted necromancers in the book. But for her, that comes entirely through suffering, through penitence, also through study. So, you know, when she talks about that idea that if nobody had ever told her how difficult it was, you know, uh, goodness knows what height she could have reached. It's not necessarily the case. And, you know, for characters like Gideon, who in fact had to have a little bit of success before she could move on, you know, uh, zone of proximal development, she had to have a little bit of difficulty. She had to have something to strive for. She had to know she could do it before she made it to the next step. 
Harrow did egotistically just always assume she could do it, but she could overcome it through work, which a lot of students do uh, genuinely believe and is in a lot of cases, you know, extremely true, but not for everything. And in the book Harrow the Ninth, Harrow does come to understand the limits of herself and that she cannot simply get through everything by dying for it or nearly so. Thank you so much, Tamsin. I'm. I bet you're a fantastic teacher. Um, Thank you. I yeah, hope so. Absolutely. Um, changing gears for a moment. I was reading your Twitter page, and I came across something from 2019 where you were alluding to a review of Gideon the Ninth, and you say something along the lines of. Now that my characters have been sorted into Hogwarts houses, I think I've peaked. Um, and any mention of Hogwarts now has me thinking of J.K. Rowling and the trouble she has gotten herself into lately. I will let you choose whether or not to address J.K. Rowling directly, but um, at what moment does social media and an author's personality, opinions, or social media profile distract and detract from their work? I think in general... Social media, qua social media, is a huge distraction. You know, uh, Jason, you had a look at my Twitter page. Um, you noted a quote from 2019. Um, you may have noticed that most of my tweets stopped in 2019 um, because as a debut author, you get told so many different things, and especially in this day and age, about one's social media profile and about how that is an invaluable tool to get through to an audience, to kind of sell yourself um, and to get your views across, to support others, to have others support you, to get to meet other people in the industry. And I think that's true up to a point. And yes, I also think that social media is pretty much the worst thing to ever happen to debut authors mm. and I think that in particular it's really hard for any debut author who has any form of mental illness and I think that being constantly in the spotlight and you know we talk about JK Rowling and you know the truth is that JK has been espousing opinions for years that have meant that some people have taken a look at a series that meant so much to them growing up that helped them become who they are and are now at the point where they cannot even read it because who JK has shown herself to be means that they no longer can uh, take any pleasure in something which, you know, just a year ago they would have said was a cornerstone of their personality. And, you know, in, in a big way, that's uh, JK Rowling's fault. Um, uh, nobody was putting a gun to her head saying that she shouldn't be say that, that she had to say what she was saying. Mm -hmm. But also, social media is just a place where every part of us, grotesque and good, is put under a microscope and kind of forced into these hideous little bite-sized pieces for everyone else to dissect. Um, I will speak honestly here. I have a mental illness that involves paranoia. So uh, when I first started to tweet on social media after my debut, I found out pretty quickly I couldn't hack it. And I don't think we have that conversation enough about how difficult social media is for people, and there is such a widespread of us, with any shade of mental illness. Especially when uh, having mental illness, you know, no matter how much you may be diagnosed or keep it under control, you're going to be ill in public. And the nice thing about being ill in public, uh, you know, pre-social media, you're ill in public, people help you, people, you know, 
dust you off, help you back up, um, uh, cover it up discreetly. But when you are ill in public on social media, there it is, and there you will be judged by it for the next 40 years of your life. Um, I know that some parts of cancel culture have been uh, celebrated as a very worthwhile and useful way of turning the tables on a lot of inbuilt privilege. And yet, you know, inarguably, cancel culture, and I mean, cancel culture is a crappy phrase anyway. Um, I use it as a shorthand here. I think it's more simply social media culture, the way in which we take tweets, hope to God they go viral, pick them over, um, and then let them kind of sit on us for the next 40 years. You know, I constantly recommended, all the while sounding like a huge square to my students, that they delete their Twitter accounts. And if I could have them back and tell them all over again, I'd tell them that louder. I think that it's a really appalling thing for anybody going through their formative years. Um, tweeting. It's an appalling thing for debut authors. And I found it was completely untenable for me. Um, so when I've tweeted now, you know, I've tweeted a couple of nice things my publisher did. And otherwise, I've blocked it. Um, and I don't think I will ever go back unless the culture changes considerably. And I don't think it's going to. I don't think so either. Thank you so much for that answer, Tamsin. And finally, um, to come back and conclude with Harrow the Ninth, so much of this story through characters and positions and magics uh, is involved with the concept of immortality. And actually, I'm reminded that I thought of Highlander several times as I was reading uh, the first novel. Can you talk about the concept of immortality, the different ways this concept manifests itself in your story, and whether those who strive to achieve it can ever understand its consequences? Well, I think being compared to Highlander is the highest compliment one can ever get paid. Um, you know, immortality is such a common theme in books, you know, especially when we read fairy stories. We inevitably have the evil wizard who wants to live forever. Um, and, you know, I'm thinking of the old uh, Russian fairy story, especially um, of the evil wizard who keeps his heart in an orchard. Um, and lives forever despite the fact that he shouldn't and the moral at the end of the story is that you know living forever is frankly a bad idea especially if you're an evil wizard i don't think that we get many stories especially fairy tales of the time about anybody who is immortal except when it comes back to ideas of the immortal soul you know at its heart the little mermaid is a very christian myth um everything that little mermaid does is in order to get an immortal soul so it may be interesting for some people very early on in Herod the Ninth when the titular immortal person uh, in all of the books, the Undying Emperor, quotes directly from The Little Mermaid. No spoilers, but, uh, you know, that may be interesting to some. And in particular, he quotes the idea uh, within the story, why have we not uh, an immortal soul? And the idea that anything that isn't born with it can get it. Um, so long as you fall in love with something that has it. And the idea of immortality, especially in Harrow, is simply the idea of getting to live uh, forever and the idea that one's power will remain the same no matter how long you live, which has let a couple of characters in the book live famously 10,000 years. No, sorry, 100,000 years, um, otherwise known as a myriad in the book. 
um, and the Undying Emperor has lived longer than that and seems like a fairly normal person. And when Harrow is talking later to another character in the book um, who asks her about uh, whether or not she would live forever, she answers without thinking, absolutely, um, because she wants enough time to see everything and do everything. But she's countered by this other character um, by saying that his main worry of immortality is just growing so old, um, not necessarily losing one's youth, but growing so old as to become uh, completely impotent, um, so as to completely fall out of sight to no longer be able to change. So it's a big theme in the book. Um, it is something that is discussed with what it means for different characters. Um, some people want to live forever because they see that as the only way to be able to memorialize loved ones who have died. Um, but in a big way, some people are living forever because they are deeply afraid of death and not in the simple fear of mortality that uh, comes with more contemporary fiction, but in the fear of what's going to happen after death. Um, I think probably to say more would be to spoil Harrow and indeed uh, Electo, the last book of the trilogy. But the fear of dying after having lived too long is an idea I'm really interested in and it is something I'm going to continue as I write the series. Excellent. Thank you so much, Tamsin. And thank you for writing these books. I know I'm not alone in saying that I cannot wait for the next one. Listeners, I've been speaking with Tamsin Mir, author of Harrow the Ninth, published by our friends at Tor. Tamsin, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Jason. And uh, it's been wonderful uh, interviewing with you. Once again, I would like to thank Tamsin Mir for joining me. Copies of Harrow the Ninth can be ordered from www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one month of audiobooks for free. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.